0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of The Business of Cyber. As you probably know by now, I've been interviewing some incredible founders and CEOs of cybersecurity startups over the past couple of months. To broaden our perspective, I wanted to find a product leader at a larger, more established cybersecurity company to have on for an interview. So with that, I'm excited to introduce Joe Levy, who is the Chief Technology and Product Officer at Sophos, one of the first and leading cybersecurity solution providers. We cover how he fosters innovation at a large company. We dig into product management and how he stays ahead of customer demand, and more broadly talk about his approach to leadership and management in general. Let me know what you guys think about the episode. We'd love to hear from you. Now, I'm excited to hand it over to Joe Levy from Sophos.
1: Well, the party is off to a good start.
0: Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. How's it going? Hi Joe, great to be here. It's going well. Very good. Well, as a way to uh, kick us off and maybe to set some context, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and how you found your way into the world of cybersecurity?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, So quick introduction. Uh, My name is Joe Levy. I'm the Chief Technology and Product Officer at the cybersecurity as a service company, Sophos. Sophos is fairly well-known in the industry. We've been around for about 35 years now, so one of the pioneers in the space of cybersecurity, even before we started calling the industry that, back when it was information security. And uh, I've I've spent about 25 years of my career uh, in, in various cybersecurity roles, started off as a practitioner and then worked through a variety of different engineering and product development roles and have spent about the past eight years here at Suffos. So the, the way I got into cybersecurity is, it's, it's a somewhat familiar story, I think for people of my generation, I'm Gen X, and uh, video games were a, a big influence on me and they, they generated this interest in computing in general. So that uh, quickly transformed from playing video games to getting into the BBS scene, the bulletin board scene in the, the early to mid 80s. Uh, ran, ran a, a fairly good sized BBS and uh, was, was interested in some of the more nefarious elements of computing at the time. So it started off with um, like multi-user dungeons and it, it quickly transformed into things like uh, crafting software and war dialing and freaking and carding. So it was pretty active in that scene as a teenager. Um, uh, it spent Fair amount of time doing development on those platforms, and then I also had a particular interest in um, analog to digital and digital to analog conversion for audio and video and for art purposes. So, wrote wrote quite a bit of software uh, in in those areas in the early early days, where where the where the interest in computing transitioned uh, to cybersecurity was. Um, around the early 90s, uh, so I, I live in Utah now and uh, Novell is, is a company that I think most people remember um, quite fondly. They were, um, they were a wellspring of creativity and innovation here in, in Utah and globally, of course. So back in the early 90s, I, I ended up working for a value-added reseller who, who was um, big in the Novell scene. This is before Microsoft and NT became a thing, just to date myself. And and I, I spent quite a bit of time actually doing the physical cabling and building out the infrastructure for what, what became internet connectivity here in Utah. Um, began uh, converting many of the businesses that we serviced from dial-up connections to the internet to direct connections using uh, CSU DSUs and Cisco 2500 series routers, just again to further date myself. And And at this time we were, Manually installing Tcp IP stacks on Windows machines, and we we were allocating public IP addresses to the desktops, and we were just directly connecting them up to the internet and, and It occurred to me hey this this is like one massive net buoy network, and like everything can communicate with virtually everything else. It would probably be a good idea if we looked at some kind of segmentation so early early in the the, the, the development of uh, this this practice that I was building at this this value-added reseller, I, I started looking at um, building different kinds of firewalling solutions. And this was primarily on the Linux platform. This is in the 2.x kernel days. So started building firewalls, started building web proxies, reporting platforms. And uh, it, it was very interesting at the time. There wasn't a lot of commercial competition for it, but there was uh, pretty significant demand. There was good uptake. We, we were very, very successful at this value-added reseller that I was working at, and um, one thing led to another, and I, I ended up working for uh, a small startup here in Utah uh, that was building SSL uh, accelerators and uh, TCP IP load balancers, and that company ended up getting acquired by SonicWall. This was in about the year 2000, and uh, that kind of set the trajectory for the remainder of my career. Great.
0: So as you've sort of experienced all of those elements and maybe, you know, evolved your way into uh, cybersecurity as a discipline and sort of focus for your career, how is the cybersecurity landscape today similar and how is it different than when you first started in the industry?
1: So similar in um, many respects that uh, there, there's, there's almost always going to be some body, some threat actor, some group out there who's, who's interested in, uh, stealing something that you have, disrupting the operation that you're running. So the, 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 the criminal element or the threat element of it, it it certainly evolves over time, but it has the same fundamental underpinnings. There's, there's something that you have that somebody wants. They, they, they believe that there's some way that they can capitalize on the operation that you're running, whether it's, uh, a denial of service attack or it's ransomware or some sort of extortion that might be associated with it. It could be the theft of intellectual property. There, there's, there's generally some kind of an underlying financial motive. Um, so that 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 part of it remains unchanged. It's just the, the tactics and techniques that we see evolve. Where, where things have changed radically is just in the way that compute operates today. So over the course of the past 20 something years that I've been doing this, of course, we've seen the the advent of uh, the cloud and um, the the kind of practical adoption of uh, major advancements in technology like machine learning and artificial intelligence. So these have been fundamental changes in the way that um, our businesses operate. The entire digital transformation movement has, of course, been uh, fueled by, by these technology trends. Uh, and, and, and what it does is it, um, it it increases the utility of our information security systems, but it, it also inevitably also increases the complexity, it increases the interconnectedness, it increases the attack surface that we present to these motivated attackers that we were talking about just a bit ago. Um, at, at the same time, we've kind of seen this um, maturation in attitudes towards cybersecurity. Cybersecurity used to be considered attacks. It was a thing that you perhaps thought of after the fact and you would attempt to layer uh, information security onto your systems rather than embedding them into secure by design sorts of architectures. And, and we've seen this um, kind of evolution of these attitudes from where uh, information security and cybersecurity is a tax that, that is kind of a penalty that businesses have to pay in order to keep their operations going into something that we see as fundamental business enablers. And now we're having board level conversations about how do we actually get better at, at cybersecurity and how do we adopt these kind of shift left attitudes toward um, the way that we secure the systems that our, our world has become so dependent upon. There have been some transformative events that have happened over the years too. I, I think that um, 9-11 itself was just a tremendous catalyst for the way that we think about um, information sharing and collaboration. Uh, so um, it, the practice of cybersecurity itself, at some point, it, it generally requires access to threat intelligence, and that requires intelligence sharing. And 9/11 was just a, a, a very poignant and painful reminder that sometimes you possess the right information, but you have those information and in, uh, that information in silos, and you, you don't share it in some way that can actually be used efficiently for the purpose of protection. So that that was huge wake-up call to the industry. And then probably the, the last thing is just um, the, the, the the sort of investment exuberance that we see around cybersecurity as an industry today. There are a lot of um, venture dollars and private equity dollars that are just being poured into cybersecurity just because it's, it's such a high growth area of the entire industry. IT grows quickly, software as a service grows more quickly than that, and then cybersecurity grows more quickly than the others as, as a subset. So I, I I think that the infusion of capital has just heated up the entire industry and it's stimulated a lot of innovation. Um, but, you know, the, the downside is that there are some boom bust cycles that are also produced as a result of that as well. So, yeah, in a nutshell, quite a bit has happened over the past 20 years. Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> um, one thing that
0: in, in just preparation for the interview I was I was intrigued by and became curious about was some of the companies that you've been a part of and and the outcomes of those companies like Solera and Bluecoat and Symantec and just, really name brand cyber businesses. I'm curious to understand, as you think back on those, uh, you know, those milestones in your career, what were some of those maybe key inflection points or moments that have shaped how you think about not only your career, but company building in general?
1: Yeah. So, um, Th- there's there's a lot of demand for better cybersecurity products. We 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 tend to um, gravitate toward the new and the shiny thing, and that that creates a lot of opportunity for innovation. Uh, it it also creates um, a lot of confusion in the market. Unfortunately, there, there's kind of a market for lemons effect that goes on within cybersecurity, where it's it's just it's difficult to measure the claims of some cybersecurity vendors, and th- there's this sort of a tension that exists between. The, the set of vendors that are operating sort of the stalwarts in the industry who have been around for a very, very long time, they, they, they have a kind of a dependability and a reliability. They can demonstrate that they can um, operate a business at scale. They're, they're durable. They're reliable. They, they have mature go-to-market operations and support operations. But at the same time, there, there just tends to be this mindset of it's difficult for very well-established and very mature companies to innovate and And when we want to find innovation, we need to go to the startup community. We need to look to see what um, venture capital is funding, for example and and that that attitude it 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 resolves itself in attention over time because some startups they succeed and they become commercially viable on their own and some of them per, perhaps go on to IPO or um, other kinds of um, market sustainability all on their own and Others uh, get acquired by these better, well-established companies that are out there, where where they identify interesting innovations that are happening through the venture community primarily. uh, And then they look for opportunities to um, integrate them and commercialize them within the larger business scheme that they're running. So I, I've been fortunate that I've had the opportunity to operate on both sides here. Um, I, I've, I've operated both for well-established um, publicly and privately held cybersecurity companies. Uh, I've, I've worked for a few cybersecurity startups. Uh, and, and I've seen both the, the, the successful lifecycle of startups where they can go off and they could succeed on their own or they could get acquired by other larger operations. Um, and... Acquisition itself and integration of startups can be interesting because there, there's this trope within the industry that certain acquirers are where good companies or good technology goes to die. So acquisition, the other side of the transaction, is really important as well. And it's 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 very easy to get these sorts of things wrong, um, and it's it's quite hard to get them right. But but oftentimes you you see these combinations of really good innovation that starts through this kind of abundance of funding that we have within venture capital today. And it just, it it stimulates a lot of risk-taking where perhaps uh, a a startup could be early in its entrance to the market um, and it it could be identified by a well-established player who, who then recognizes an opportunity to pick up and integrate that technology and then to commercialize it broadly and to bring it to a very mature customer base that they have. So the, the, the journey has been a very, very interesting one for me. And uh, you know, I, 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 encourage, um, I encourage people to try the startup thing, at least at some point in their lives. Uh, there's, there's just a wonderful set of experiences that come with that. Uh, it, it unfortunately ends up more often than not in uh, failure. <laughs> uh, but uh, still, it's, it's the kind of experience that I, I would encourage anyone to try. You mentioned innovation
0: a couple of times and you know, sort of the opinion or the you know perception in the market that a lot of innovation comes from startups. Um, so I'm curious as the you know head of technology and product at a, a very large established organization, how you think about fostering innovation so that you guys can remain ahead of the pack, if you will.
1: Yeah, so um, identifying a problem uh, yeah, is, is probably a good place to begin. And a problem could be uh, it's it's a gap that exists within the market. It's a, a, a kind of a need that is just not being addressed. Innovation could also mean um, taking an existing set of solutions and just figuring out how to do that better. It could be process improvement, not just necessarily technological invention. Um, so both of those present themselves as opportunities. Uh, one of the one of the most influential books I've ever read in my career, and I, I continue to refer to it on a regular basis, is um, Clayton Christensen's Innovators Dilemma, which is about 25 years old now. And it it, it basically looks at a, a number of examples across the industry. They looked at things like um, hard drives. They looked at things like uh, excavators, like you know b- b- big big construction project excavators. And and the the, the book just examines the sort of tension that exists between uh, exploring and exploiting. There's a lot of companies that are are mature in their operations that have been around for a long time. You know, they've achieved 100 million ARR, a billion ARR, whatever metric of of success they they choose to use there. And and what they find is that it's it's often difficult to spend any of their calories on anything except for their core business or, or to work through the established value chains that they have. And I, I, I think that in, in order for innovation to continue to thrive, um, c- companies need to be mindful of this. They, it, I, I, I would recommend to anyone who hasn't read The Innovator's Dilemma to to go ahead and read it. I think that there's still a lot of very good um, salient lessons there. And then this this kind of balance that we have between the, the the startup space and the well-established space is it's a very healthy relationship, I think, and it's 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 one that I I, I think is Propelled the industry along in, in very important ways over the years, um, and, and one that I, I expect to see continue to operate for the benefit of the industry at large.
0: Are there any stories that that come to mind, maybe that you've experienced throughout, you know, any of the companies that you've been a part of throughout your career, um, where either one of two things happened? You guys sort of saw where the puck was moving and were ahead of the game, and were able to, uh, you know take advantage of an opportunity in the market or, or the inverse, right? You, you miss something and an opportunity was taken by a startup or a large, large company. So is there an example uh, that comes to mind where you would mind maybe sharing a story?
1: Yeah, I, I, a number of examples come to mind here. One is I, I, I think um, just looking recently at uh, a, a sort of a shift in the threat landscape that um, the, the entire market had to react to. Uh, that is ransomware. I, I, I think uh, ransomware is kind of the, the, the culmination of the, this, um, this convergence of the advent of cryptocurrencies and attackers um, industrializing their business models. Um, so like we've, we've seen the sort of increase in industrialization among the attackers over the past decade or so. Where, where they, they've just become much more organized and they, they run their operations like businesses and they have specializations and some of them are involved in initial access brokerage and some of them design the, the ransomware payload itself and, and some of them are in, in involved in providing um, communication channels for um, command and control and that sort of thing. You, you combine that with what happened with um, the, the, the adoption and the advent of cryptocurrencies and then some of the, the run-up in the value of cryptocurrencies, and that, that that's brought about this perfect storm of, of ransomware. Th- there were some companies, and Cephalus and, and is included in this, that made fairly early investments in um, building better mousetraps around detecting and thwarting ransomware, so th- this, this can take shape in a variety of different ways, but we we made very significant investments in looking at the behaviors associated with the processes that are running that are uh, often a component of ransomware running on an endpoint. And and we had very, very effective technology, um, both uh, for the detection and the the neutralization, and then the, the restoration of, of ransomware should it happen within an environment. So this is an example where, where I think we were fortunate in timing the market. We brought uh, we brought a technological advancement to the market in advance of the explosion of ransomware as a phenomenon within the industry. And it, it had the benefit, of course, of protecting those of our customers who, who had um, chosen that product. But but it also, uh, it, it meaningfully moved the reputation of Suffolk forward as um, one of the best cybersecurity vendors uh, to align yourself with as a customer. If you were concerned with ransomware threat, and it's it, it was and still continues to be a very very significant one. So that that's that's an example of of one that was fairly early. Um, other examples are you could be too early to market with some things. Um, so you know th- things like uh, SSL decryption. Like I I've been building and shipping SSL decryption technologies um, since about the year 2000. And back then, when about 20 percent of the traffic on the Internet was encrypted and attackers really weren't taking advantage of encrypted channels for things like uh, command and control, it, 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 w- it was a technology whose time had not yet come. And then advanced 15 years and of course, you know, 90 percent of the traffic, 98 percent of the traffic on the Internet is encrypted now, and, and the majority of attackers are using encrypted channels for some component of their attack then you, you could see where the, the technology is not only viable, but it's necessary. So th- this, this is the trade-off decisions that uh, companies have to make all the time. They, they could recognize that there is a, a kind of an emergent problem that might not have yet hit some critical inflection point where there's not a uh, mass concern about that particular uh, technology or that particular threat within the market. They could bring it out early. They could hope that they establish a reputation for themselves as being um, one of the industry leaders or one of the pioneers or one of the innovators in the space. But there is a cost involved in sustaining that technology. You have to sustain the development teams. There's a go-to-market effort associated with selling it and marketing it. And it it requires a kind of a conviction. You you, you have to have the conviction to uh, remain uh, invested in a technology when it's early to the market. And um, sometimes it's uh, it's easy to make the decision and say, we're just not going to see the return on this investment. Let's go ahead and deinvest here. And uh, then, uh, you know, it could be a month later or two months later that uh, suddenly there's massive demand within the market because of some event that occurred. And then uh, you, you wish you had stayed the course. So lacking a crystal ball, all I could say is that we, we need to rely on our uh, convictions. We need to rely on feedback from our customers about. What's important to them today, and what um, what they're thinking about as um, future concerns that they have.
0: This will be a a big question, but I I think it'll tie in examples from both of those stories, with the ransomware example, um, and then just kind of the the broad subject of maybe a a technology being a bit too early. Um, You know, when you reflect on on your career thus far, and, and you think about sort of your time as a you know product and engineering leader. What are sort of the, the core pillars of building good products? You've mentioned things like staying close to customers, really understanding customer pain, et cetera. But what are some of those, those core pillars?
1: So probably the, the, the single most important thing is um, customer empathy, um, re- really having a, a kind of a tight connection to your customers and understanding what their experience with your technology is. And, and the experience with the technology could be anything from the user interface to the user experience overall to the analyst experience as um, cybersecurity becomes increasingly interactive. We, 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 we wanna make sure that we, we make it very, very easy for our customers to find um, the, the kind of technological offerings that we have, whether it's a product or a service, to uh, acquire it, to test it, to run a successful POC to understand what an optimal kind of a configuration would look like. Basically, our, our, as a vendor, are you doing everything in your customer's interest um, to make sure that they can find you, they can uh, acquire your stuff, and, and that they're more likely than not to have a good experience with it? And that, that runs through the entire lifecycle of the product, of course, like from, from the way that you market it to the way that you sell it, to the way that you do your POCs and your SE support that you provide as a company. Your your support organization, the way that your teams interact with your customers like do do they want to interact by email? Do they want to interact by Slack? Um, Do do they want to interact by video conference? So supporting your customers in ways that are empathetic to how they operate, I I think, is the single most important thing. And then there's just a a bunch of um, other experiences that I've had. Um, You know, again, we've talked about these business cycles. So if you look at the industry over 20 years. We, we we've seen this cycle play itself out a number of times where we go through these feast or famine kind of investment cycles and, and right now we're going through a, a major global correction um not just within cybersecurity, but you know a, a, across all industries and, and and it is is not immune to this in any way um but we go through these feast famine cycles and and that uh, it, it has a corollary of um specialization and consolidation cycles so just being able to navigate those successfully um, as, as either as a small company or as a large company. The the, the good thing about these um, the sort of corrective cycles that we're going through right now is that um, scarcity, uh, it forces uh, it forces discipline or it forces parsimony. It makes you go back to basics and look at your architectures and just ensure that you're actually designing your things as efficiently as you possibly could. Again, getting back to the days where we used to have like 16K of memory on machines, we designed our software a little bit differently than we do now that, you know, you can go get an instance with 1.5 terabytes of RAM. So it, it, it causes you to think a little bit differently about um, your, your architectures and, and your operations uh, be, because we have the, the cloud and we have relatively cheap compute power um, and, and we've got more dollars getting injected into the industry because of um, venture capital. Uh, It it does cause the entire industry to heat up. And um, we saw this in the run-up to the the recent correction, but there was a lot of risk-taking that was happening. There there were a lot of investments that were being made by venture capital that maybe, in hindsight, they shouldn't have made. Maybe there were some startups that came onto the market that really um, never had a viable business model or never had a viable standalone technology. Uh, So I I, I think that, um, that that is the result of... The, these feast cycles that we go through, where, where there's um, just a, a lean in on a willingness to take risk. And the other side of that is that you usually end up with some sort of a correction, you usually end up with a fairly high failure rate. But but then that leads into the consolidation cycle where the good, good technology and the good innovations that came out of that risk taking can get reintegrated into other companies that can operate the more sustainably within the market. I
0: want to dig into the uh, the market cycle a bit, and, and maybe pivot a little from sort of your your career and just the market in general to more like your leadership style, and maybe talk a little bit about how your leadership style changes or evolves based on market dynamics. And and even for some some context, one of the reasons I'm curious about this, like what we're currently going through and you know have been going through for the last maybe few months or. Um, you know, a few quarters, I'll say, is the first sort of big market correction that I've experienced as part of my career. I'm I'm not counting the first, uh, you know, the spring of 2020 associated with COVID. Um, So I guess maybe this would be the second if we do count that. But just as, you know, someone who's witnessed this multiple times, what sort of the evolution or the approach uh, from a leadership standpoint that you've seen that evolves maybe?
1: Uh, so, personal experiences vary, of course, but my personal experience here has been that um, I, I've I've become more patient as a result of having gone through these cycles uh, a number of times now. I'm 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 more willing to give things more time than I would have, um, you know, 20 years ago, for example. So I I I think patience is is one thing personally that um, I, I've 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 seen develop in me as a result of this. Just in terms of um, sort of the mainstays of leadership in general, um, like general advice that I could give is, um, again, to use the word empathy. Empathy is very important. And that, that means empathy for your customers, but also empathy for your people, understanding that that when we're going through these correction cycles in industries, that it, it generally uh, it, it results in this effect of we all need to do more with less, which is a hardship for people to have to deal with. So just... Being mindful of the impact that these sorts of um, corrections can have to, to our teams, uh, we 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 want to make sure that uh, we operate with uh, adaptability. Uh, we, uh, we we want to be able to react to things that are happening within our organizations, of course. Uh, but at the same time, we, we need to be consistent for the purpose of predictability. So one of the, one of the worst things that you could do to an organization is, um, to, to manage in a volatile way or manage in a way that, um, your, your, your people don't know what to predict from, uh, your, your decisions and your behaviors and your actions and how you're going to treat them. Trust is, uh, foundational, um, especially at these times. Um, we, 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 we tend to, um, as, as leaders, we, we tend to want to micromanage when things aren't going well. When, when things are going well, we, we allow them to operate relatively on a kind of an autopilot. When things aren't going well, the, the tendency, of course, is to just get in there and to, to try to micromanage. And, and that's the absolute worst thing that you could possibly do. If, 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 you're, if your teams are under stress, if your teams are constrained because of recent corrections that have occurred, uh, the last thing that you want to do is go in there and begin to second-guess them or demonstrate that you don't trust their judgment. Uh, so it, it's it's critical that you resist the temptation to micromanage during um, times of hardship like this. We we need to continue to um, practice enabling our teams and empowering our teams to operate on their own. Uh, you know we, we we continue to hear the adage over and over again in the industry that one of the primary reasons why uh, people leave their job is because of their manager, and um, yeah, at, at particularly at stressful times, as as leaders in in business, whether we're in security operations or we're developing software or you know any element of the business that we're operating in, now is precisely the time where we need to be demonstrating trust in our people. Um, and then finally, I, I, I think it, it just it comes down to judgment. And um, I, I think most people are familiar with uh, Dunning-Kruger, the unskilled and unaware of the paper from 20 something years ago. People are familiar with it um, because it, it, the, the phenomenon is generally known as uh, people overestimate their ability to perform well in certain tasks. They overestimate their expertise. But but there's a there's a component of uh, Dunning Kruger which has always really appealed to me, and it's th- this quote that says that um, the knowledge that underlies the ability to produce correct judgment is also the knowledge that underlies the ability to recognize the correct judgment, and to lack the former is to be deficient in the latter. I think this is one of the best quotes ever, and this this really plays into um, it's a, it's a voice in the back of my head, and it plays into my leadership style. I I I need to make sure that I I, I have sufficient judgment to be able to know when my people are doing well, or when they can use, um, some, some guidance from me. And it's, 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 it's important that they, um, they recognize that I possess that judgment, but, but more importantly, when, when I allow them to operate autonomously, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm demonstrating a confidence and a faith in them. Um, and, and I, I, I think that, um, it's it's absolutely essential to uh, a durable style of leadership in any kind of an operation.
0: If I'm remember, remembering correctly, you guys are, are your team is largely remote, right, or largely distributed.
1: Yeah, we we um we have we have about 4,100 employees uh, globally mm-hmm. now. We we operate out of uh, or, or I should say we operated out of a large number of offices globally. But we were fortunate that prior to COVID, uh, we had actually started the process of onboarding um, a, a zero trust architecture across our entire IT environment, and we began enabling our employees to operate remotely through this the zero trust adoption that we had started early. This is another example of um, starting something early that could pay benefits in the long run. So yeah, we're um, we're we're entirely remote in our operation today. We're we're remote first uh, philosophy in the way that we do all of our um, recruiting and our hiring. So with
0: that, you know, one thing I I kind of personally struggle with, and I don't know if this is just like a a self-limitation or or whatnot, but uh, I'm under the impression it's more difficult to build kind of trust-based relationships and establish sort of a trust uh, trusting environment amongst a team in a fully remote setting. It's just it's easier to pick up that dynamic and establish that relationship face to face. so what what would your advice be to someone who maybe perceives that to be a struggle in terms of building a trusting team in a fully remote
1: world? yeah, it's it's very true. Um, and it, yeah, we during the peak of covid, i I, I think that most of us our our, our corporate policies were, close to lockdown, like uh, m- many, many organizations, uh, they, they didn't even allow people to go into their offices, for example. So, some of them allowed it, but yeah, there, there was a strict policy that was controlling it. But for the past few years, yeah, we've been effectively locked out of our offices where it, it, it would appear now that um, things are beginning to improve to the point And we're seeing more and more businesses returning to um, what, what was, previously a, a normal mode of operating we're seeing a lot of companies announcing a, a return to office policy um, in, in fact they're saying you must return to the office in some cases uh, we're, we're not doing that at this point but we, we absolutely recognize the, the, the necessity of these face-to-face connections um, whether it's through uh, establishing an initial rapport with people that you're hiring into your team or we're helping to accelerate the, the development of trust that I, I think can still occur through remote interactions, but it just occurs at a different clock speed. It, it occurs much more slowly when, when you're relegated to just work uh, relationships that are purely by Zoom or purely by Slack or Teams or uh, other electronic media. So what what we've been doing is we've been encouraging teams to get together for various sorts of offsides various summits um, get get the, the working groups um, pr- generally cross-functional working groups together in uh, groups of m- maybe a dozen to a couple of dozen and just give them the opportunity to work on a, on a particularly hard problem over the course of a week for example and and, and this this has been proving to be a very effective, uh, tactic for us to use because it, it, it does, um, it, it rapidly allows for the development of trust that had previously been hindered by a purely remote working arrangement. Um, it, it, it gives people the, the opportunity to um, uh, establish a working rapport outside of just these relegated boxed in meeting times that we have, where you're going from one one hour Zoom meeting to the next one hour Zoom meeting. Uh, it, it allows us to kind of explore the, the liminal space of being human um, a little more effectively than a purely remote work arrangement does. And, and I think, uh, being the social animals that we are, it's uh, it's absolutely essential to to our operation. And um, feedback has been that uh, satisfaction, um, job satisfaction, and um, just empathy for coworkers uh, has has improved significantly uh, as a result of that. The the other side of it is is quite interesting. Also, Um, yeah, I've heard um, some some people talking about uh, the the recent round of corrections that um, many businesses have gone through in the industry and that um, particularly for those who had been through uh, other similar kinds of corrections earlier in their careers, that this one uh, felt a little bit different uh, because uh, the, the, the effects of COVID had sort of suppressed the the relationship development um, w- within teams and within organizations. And, um, you know, per- perhaps if we don't feel it during the course of our normal operations, it, it, it unfortunately, it became a little clearer um, di- during the course of these restructurings that, that a lot of businesses have been going through lately.
0: Yeah. I really like the suggestion for the, uh, you know, off-sites or, or summits to have it focused on a cross-functional team um, focused on solving, you know, one specific tricky problem, right? It's not just uh, getting together to go to a happy hour, do some series of icebreakers that nobody really wants to do. It's, you know, sort of very, very very focused on one concrete objective and working through that together is going to bring people together organically.
1: Yeah. They, there's, there's a kind of a camaraderie that emerges from that as well. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the social hour icebreakers as well. Like, uh, th- those have, have a time and a place. Um, but, but, but I think that, um, mission orientation is really, really helpful. And and when you, yeah. you set people, um, on, on a particular task and, you know, you, 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 you give them the opportunity to go take a hill, then yeah, there's a kind of a satisfaction that emerges from that. And, uh, a kind of a camaraderie that you, you just couldn't otherwise get. Yeah. Very good. Well, Joe, I'd love to
0: pivot into the uh, the rapid fire round. Um, it's how we wrap up every interview. And the basic premise is I ask you a few quick questions and you share whatever comes top of mind. Sound good? Sounds good. Cool. Uh, you've mentioned The Innovator's Dilemma, but uh, if it's not that, what's your favorite book?
1: Uh. Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman.
0: Okay. What do you like about it? That's the first time it's been mentioned. I, I, I love the book, but what do, you, what do you like about it?
1: Yeah, so I, I've, I've been a, kind of an acolyte of Kahneman and Tversky for a very, very long time. And, and that book in particular, I think it was kind of the culmination of Kahneman's work. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's social behavioralist, behavioral econ, uh, economist. Uh it, it it he basically attempts to understand human motivations and how and why we do things and why cognitive biases emerge in us and how to be aware of them, how to be aware of your own and um how to perhaps better navigate um their, their manifestation in others. And uh I, I just I found it one of those books that just completely changed the way that I think about the world. Let's see.
0: What's the best piece of career advice that you've ever received?
1: Try things. F- figure out what's a best mm. fit for you. Um, you know, we 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 spent a fair amount of time talking about startups and large established companies and and the the, the relationship that exists between both of them. I, I I consider myself fortunate that I've I've had the opportunity to have multiple experiences across both startups and well established companies. I no, nobody really knows what is the best fit for them in, until they have the chance to test it out. So we, we we often go through life curious about whether the grass is really greener on the other side or not. The only way to answer the question is to go check out the grass. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not, I I'm I, I don't want to leave the wrong impression on this one and and, and have anyone interpret this to mean that I'm, I'm encouraging people to go quit their jobs and go do something different. <laughs> but if, um, if, if, if there's if there's a curiosity, particularly earlier, um, in your career about whether you're a a big person company or a small person company, or whether you like innovation or whether you like optimization or whether you want to work for a for-profit organization or, uh, a a nonprofit, or whether you want to be on the software development side, or you want to be on the practitioner side, the best way to answer the question is to go test the waters. And, um, that was advice that was given to me early. It, um, I, I think it did factor into the, the kind of variety that I've had in my career, and I'm grateful for it.
0: If you could change uh, one thing about the security industry, what would it be?
1: If I could change one thing about the cybersecurity industry, I would come up with a better way to deal with the information asymmetry problem that we have. I, I think that buyers of cybersecurity products and services just don't have a very good and reliable and repeatable way to assess the claims that are being made by different vendors. And in, in a world of perfect information, in a world of information symmetry, I, I think that we would see a lot of organizations make better decisions about uh, the vendors that they choose to align themselves with. There, there's, uh, there's no magic wand for this. There's no one thing that we can really do to, to solve the problem overnight. The good news is that we we continue to see uh, an increasing adoption of uh, sort of scientific method when it comes to evaluating claims, um, and and this this plays out in a number of ways. One is um, demanding transparency from our vendors, just uh, you know a- asking them to talk about the way that they secure their own software supply chains, the way that they run their own uh, internal um, incident response programs, the investments that they make in ensuring that they're going to be a good custodian of your data and that they take their own internal security very seriously has to start there because you can have a cybersecurity vendor that could make the the best technology in the world. But if they themselves don't do a good job securing their own internal operation, then it's it's going to create exposures in other areas. So transparency from vendors is one important thing. Uh, transparency of measurement and kind of standard candles for the industry so that we can actually measure the efficacy of some of these products and services. And, and rather than just trusting vendors' claims, um, which are, they, they, they tend not to be apples to apples, and um, they, they, they tend to be biased in favor of the vendor, of course. Uh, things like... Um, the MITRE ATT&CK framework, or the the recent evaluation that uh, MITRE performed for MDR managed detection and response providers. It's wonderful to see these kinds of contributions coming from MITRE and OASIS and other organizations that are really concerned with coming up with better measurements and better benchmarks for the industry so that we can close that information asymmetry gap.
0: That's a very good one. All right. Last question. Uh, if you could go back in time and get a drink with your 20 year old self, what advice would you give him?
1: Floss more regularly, uh, stretch before exercising. Is this the kind of advice that you were asking about or were, were you, going hey, it, a slightly different
0: it, it, it works. It works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Th-
1: th- these, these, these are, uh, these are typical sorts of reactions that you'd get from just about any 50 something year old, I think. Um, but yeah I, I, the, the one professionally that, that I would probably say is, um, figure out figure out what prevents you from being more empathetic. And uh, I, I think empathy is something that just naturally increases as we get older. Um, it, we're, it, it, it does in many people, not in all people. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and figuring out what the, um, impediments to greater empathy earlier on, I, I think would be just a, a good exercise in self-reflection that probably 20 something year old me would have appreciated. Like if, if me today came to a 20 year old me and, and said, just be more empathetic, I don't think that would have gone well, but po- posing it in the form of a, a reflection exercise, I, I think could have been interesting. Very good.
0: Well, Joe, it's been a pleasure uh, meeting you and and chatting with you. So thank you for uh, for your time and, and for the opportunity to connect today.
1: Thanks, Joe. Yeah, this was really good. I'm glad we had the chance to do it.